I am a fashion icon at the gym. I was feeling so good. I got cute new workout shorts. They are seafoam green. I got cute new sneakers. They are lavender. And I have my workout tank top that says, if you don't like horoscopes, you can Zodi back out of my life. And I am oh my. an icon. This modern world of science and invention is of particular interest to women. Hello and welcome to Lady History, the good, the bad, and the ugly ladies you missed in history class. Hey Lexi, who was your favorite teacher? Mrs. Pathathis. She taught AP literature and analytical writing. Um, I hope she's doing okay. She's an icon and I love her. And Haley, what's the best part of the back to school season? I actually lived for that time right after 4th of July where Targa would have all their back to the school stuff. Yeah, I was that kid that color-coded everything. Oh, this is so difficult. Oh, me too. Absolutely. I think that's all three of us. I'm going to say, like, I have a big obsession with backpacks. So I think, like, that new, fresh backpack. And I'm Alana, and I'm the only one of us who is actually still in school. So educators. So educators. Education. I am an educator. Remember how I teach Hebrew, which is a language that I do not speak to students across the country over Zoom. I wonder if I could get I my educator discount. educators. That's well, true. I got In an educator sense. discount at Anthropology when I had a Smithsonian ID. That's true. That's fun. Librarians, museum think... professionals, anyone who like educates the public, at least in Anthropology. I'm not saying this is every store. Some stores yeah. might be like, this isn't a teacher ID. But Anthropology, specifically in Tyson's in Virginia because like they know what the Smithsonian is they took right right 10% off of Smithsonian ID I really like this new stance and it's not a new stance it's just a stance that more people have opened in their eyes ears all the holes and embrace that that educators don't need to be like the stereotypical teacher you go to class you have a teacher standing in front of you lecturing you can learn from a whole host of different people and things And I feel like the pandemic really blossomed that. And I will try to find this and at least put it for the upcoming like newsletter in September. But I think this comes out like September 2nd. Exactly. There is like a thing over the pandemic where it was like, hey guys, remember how you're loving these art things that are coming out? How like these museums are doing these free online events for you? Your kids are watching all these shows that are educational shows. Yeah, those are the arts. You still want to defund them? Like, haha. Also, just even STEM education sometimes gets I the, mean, that's the on, thing. chopping block because it's yeah. in education, but then gets its like butt saved because who cares about future generations? Right. Ah. That's the thing. That's the thing about the pandemic is that like we have discovered. It was previously known to these yes. people, but yeah. as a as a society, yes, we, we live in a society. We live in a society. We have discovered that the most essential people to society are paid the least. Yes, this is true. Teachers, artists, nurses, grocery store workers, food delivery people, package like, delivery like, people, package- postal workers. Like the Uber Javers. <laughs> Uber Javers. There is a, another 
kind of janitors. Like pandemic. Sorry. Oh my. Janitors. All very important. With. Janitorial staff has been very important. Essential. May I say? Hundred percent agree with all. I love educators. I do Educator too. appreciation. I used to give all my teachers a $25 Dunkin' Donuts gift card for Christmas to tell Dunkin'. them I love them. Oh, and you're in Pennsylvania, so it's it was good Dunkin'. Mm-hmm. We did, I think we did like a Starbucks. I would like to humanize the space age by giving a perspective from a non-astronaut because I think the students will look at that and say, this is an ordinary person. This ordinary person is contributing to history. And if they can make that connection, then they're going to get excited about history. They're going to get excited about the future. They're going to get excited about space. I am currently living in a bonfire. And by that, I mean, I live in Reno, Nevada. And the date is August 25th. And you can feel free to look up what the air quality was that day. Um, And this shows how behind we are in recording. Most podcasts are recorded like months in advance. Here we are. It's fine. But if I sound hoarse or disgusting. I don't don't think that many podcasts record that far in advance. I think like a week-ish out is. I don't know. Some people are like, we record four episodes at a time. I'm like, God bless your soul. Um, We used to do two. We still do two sometimes. We still do two sometimes. We just don't always. But that is to say, if I sound hoarse or cough or whatever, I do not have Miss Rona. Miss Rona has not come to visit. I am living in a bonfire. So I'm going to start with a warning. And it's not about the smoke. It's not about the smoke. This story is very, very heavy. If you are not in the right place to hear a story that is distressing in many, many ways, skip this. Go to the next story. Go to the next episode. I don't know. Just move on from, from this specific moment. Go after the ad break. Unless my fellow hosts have distressing stories today. But I think you're safe after the ad break for this episode. With that said, we'll begin. I once, as an adult, was chatting with my mom about what my earliest memory was. And she was shocked that I remembered in detail where she and I were when the news of the events of September 11, 2001 broke. Understandably, she was shocked because I was only four years and 10 months old. And most people don't remember things from that time. She doesn't remember ever telling me where we were or retelling the story in any way. Because she was so distressed about it, she never wanted to think about it again. So she's certain that this is one of my earliest memories, and I genuinely remember it. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but I agree with you. Yeah. That's my earliest memory. My earliest memory is from four years old. And it was me arguing with my preschool teacher. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) I think many people born in 1996 or 1995, their first memory is my 11th. I told her, I think it's something about tragedy and like such a dramatic change in the world that changes so many things about the way we live that causes a really strong memory for me because I have fragments of memories from before this, but this is a really vivid memory and I think it shaped a lot of things for me. So that's why I remember it. I can still remember my mom and I rushing home from the library because like everywhere on the East Coast was getting evacuated. You couldn't be in public places and it's really vivid. That led me to ask my mom the question, Were there any tragedies from your childhood that stood out to you as vivid memories? And while this story wasn't her earliest memory, wasn't her earliest memory by a lot, she says it is one that is burned into her mind, clearly one of her most vivid memories from being a kid. And it is one that I have briefly mentioned on the show before. On January 28, 1986, every American student had their eyes on one thing, the launch of the space shuttle Challenger. For the first time, a civilian would be going to space. That civilian was teacher Krista McAuliffe. She had been selected from more than 11,000 teacher applicants who answered Ronald Reagan's request to send an American teacher to space. Krista, born on September 2nd, 
very soon, her birthday, 1948 in Boston. The day this comes out. Oh my God, this comes out on her birthday? Wow, happy birthday, Krista. Um, so yeah, Krista, born today, if you listen to this, the day it comes out in Boston, was interested in space from a young age. On her application to be a part of the space program, she wrote, I watched the space age being born and I would like to participate. In 1970, Krista married her longtime boyfriend and the couple moved to Washington, D.C. Her first teaching job was at a junior high in Maryland. Krista and her husband had two children and she completed a master's degree in education. Eventually, Krista started teaching high school social studies, including courses in history, law, and economics. She also designed and taught her own class, The American Woman, which I would love to see a syllabus for. Reflecting on her teaching style after her death, a New York Times article wrote, quote, she emphasized the impact of ordinary people on history, saying they were as important to the historical record as kings, politicians, or generals, which I think is really similar to what we try and do on this show, so that I found to be really meaningful. NASA and President Reagan's decision to send a civilian, particularly an educator, into space filled two purposes. First, it would renew interest in the educational value of NASA, which was losing interest among the public after the space race fever had died down. Second, it would show how safe space travel was. Like, look, even a teacher can do it. NASA would fail at achieving both of these objectives. After being selected for the program, Krista took leave from her teaching position to train with NASA. She was going to conduct experiments and teach lessons from space and needed to practice on the ground first. On January 28, 1986, Krista and her crewmates boarded the space shuttle Challenger. The eyes of every American child and teenager were on them. Just 73 seconds after takeoff, the shuttle broke apart. Most of the people watching did not realize what happened until a few minutes later, when it became clear that all seven crew members had passed away. Because of the extensive media coverage of the special launch, the impact of the event was immediately felt all over the country. Krista is honored and remembered in so many ways. Her legacy lives on, with more than 40 schools around the world named after her. Countless books and films have been made to tell her story, and you can still view her space lessons recorded during her training online today. Krista's daughter, who was just six when she lost her mother, became a teacher too. Additionally, three of Krista's students, who remember watching the tragedy unfold on TV at high school, became teachers too. I think my mom actually remembers this. And this would have been like, I guess, 84, she was in high school. But 86. 86. 86, she would have been in high school going into college. And I I feel like this was like what our parents remember, like you were saying for 9-11. So at least for New York City kids and New York kids absolutely remember. And like my dad was supposed to be in the Twin Towers for a lunch like meeting and he often got there early. So that was all chaotic, like mess. I feel like so, so many, many East Coasters, like particularly in the New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, yeah. like Eastern Pennsylvania area, they either have a story like that or know someone with a story like that. Oh, so many yeah. of my parents' friends like, oh, my you know, my dad or like my, my husband or whatever was like supposed to be there and then wasn't. It's crazy. Yeah. Not to like bring up Hank Green again, but oh my. Um, he was in school in Florida. Yes. And so they were all outside. He's talked about this before. Oh my God. Um, yeah. They were I actually, outside I'm, watching. I think Hank Green was how I truly conceptualized what had happened, not through my parents or through media. So we all know Helen Keller, 
I kind of think about Helen Keller, Anne Frank, Ruby Bridges, et cetera, as a whole group of people in the education system. Keep the Children's Museum of Indianapolis's great example to teach about empathy and activism. And what an interesting group of women to think about like that. So I don't know. I know Anne Frank's in there and I believe Helen Keller's in there. I think Ruby Bridges, but it's a whole gang of kids. But just in general, I remember Helen Keller as someone who was taught to me in the very early stages as like, here's her story and here's how to be like a brave kid, uh, how to be inspirational, also included empathy. And I know that's, again, Children's Museum of Indianapolis is an amazing museum and I really want to visit Indianapolis to go to this museum. So I'm not going to kind of talk more about what she's been like in the education system, but talk about her as herself being the educator, because you might not know it. She did do some educating and not the very traditional sense. So actually, this episode is kind of like a two for one sale or special because I'm so special. You can't have Helen without Anne. And Anne Sullivan was also an incredible teacher, Helen's teacher. Helen Keller was born in Tuscacumbia, Alabama. Real fun word. I didn't know that was a place in Alabama. And when she was 19 months old, she lost her sight and hearing from what we now think was scarlet fever. Her parents enrolled her in the Perkins Institute, which is a school in Boston, so she could have a super special teacher with her in class, enter Anne Sullivan. And actually the day they met, Helen would later call her, quote, soul's birthday because meeting Anne basically made her soul awaken and just brought her to the actual world. She was born in like 18, late 1880s. And so this is kind of like that time going into the 1900s. I don't blame the parents for not necessarily knowing how to fully educate a child that was both deaf and blind and mute until she kind of grasped more educational systems, i.e. Braille and sign language. But go Anne. Like Anne was truly the one who just helped her explore the world. And Anne Sullivan was the one who basically opened the world oyster to Helen. There's one specific part that has been ingrained in all the children's memories when they talk about Helen Keller. And that's when part of Anne's teaching method was to first teach Helen all the like sign language letters so she could spell out words in Helen's hand, but then show her what that meant. For example, Anne first signed water and then put Helen's hand under the rushing water of this like fountain or something. So Helen could make the connection of, okay, this is what water feels like. This is like what a cat feels like and make all those really important connections in her head. So this dynamic duo went off to different deaf schools in Boston and New York City and then Radcliffe College. Peep to our last episode with another special lady went to Radcliffe College. And note, Helen would either be reading or writing in Braille, but Anne would also be repeating what was being said in the lectures in Helen's hand. That's just mind-blowing of how she was able to just do all that. And then also... This is like a fun, so frustrating fact. 
So the Perkins Institute, which is still around today, it's still a very famous institute for, I believe it's both for deaf and blind uh, people to go for, it's a special like school, you have special teachers, you get a special education model, research based for visually impaired and the deaf community and certain advancements. I am not very knowledgeable on it. I just know a few friends who want to go on and do grad school at Perkins and they actually accused Helen of like plagiarism, I guess, like with the help of Anne from this like one article or like paper she wrote was like this sniffs of plagiarism. And I really like would have wanted to see Helen's reaction to be like, how, how the fuck am I plagiarizing when like, I, I need someone to physically write out their words. Like if you're looking at me to like, if I'm plagiarizing, like look at Anne, because like, I I don't know, that just blows my mind. Perkins ended up apologizing, being like, that was shitty of us to be, hey, you're plagiarizing an accuser of plagiarizing, because actually that incident is what made Helen leave that school. So like, F them, they just like took away a great, well, what should have been a great education source for Helen Keller, but she said bye bitch and I think she actually published that same note or some sort of writing of hers in the Perkins like journal later on so I feel like that's like a very academic and poetic fu of you screwed me over and now I'm going to just write a bunch of shit and put in your journal and that kind of leads me into her educating note and by the time she was a junior at Radcliffe she finished her first book called the story of my life which is still in print and is in over 50 languages. She published over five books that ranged from her personal experience, religion, the contemporary social problems at the time, socialism, and Anne Sullivan's biography. Really the big educating parts to hone in on here were when she wrote about how she perceived the world and also about being an advocate for disability rights and people with disabilities, which is brilliant. I applaud 1,000, 10,000%. And that was kind of her advocating also led into a lecture circuit. Like many of our ladies that we've talked about, especially in the suffragist movement, like the lecture circuit was a big thing in the 1910s, 1920s. And these lectures were mostly about her life And she tried to admit her political and religious reviews. I have a feeling they kind of like twinkled all on in, if you know what I'm saying. In the end, she really wanted to focus on her life and how she overcame so many challenges. And then also that if she had such challenges of being blind or being deaf, there is others out there like her that need the same help. And she kind of recognized that she was privileged in that sense that her parents could get her Anne to be with her. Even after Anne died, Helen had another educator, friend, companion. The term was also companion in a lot of the books because Anne turned out to be like Helen's best friend. They had a beautiful relationship. And I believe Anne was even like holding, Helen and Anne were holding hands when Anne died. And then I think the same thing for her next companion. And then again, after that, she had like another one. So she kind of recognized in some of the lectures that she did in some of the books, I get the sense that she recognized that she was privileged and that 
there needs to be some sort of way. And she was a big socialist, big, big socialist. So I believe that kind of leaked into her lectures on being a disability advocate. To kind of sum up her whole story, she also devoted a lot of her life to raising funds, such as funds for the American Foundation for the Blind. She also founded the Helen Keller International Organization in 1915, a foundation to research and vision and health and nutrition. And another organization she helped start was the American Civil Liberties Union. Fantastic human, but I am still just so happy that they're kind of using her story as a way to teach the small children about empathy and also disability awareness, because I feel like that's not a thing that's being taught. So this story has a content warning for slavery and the racism that comes with slavery, although it's just kind of a mention, whatever, you'll see. Susanna Baker, later known as Susie King Taylor, was the daughter of enslaved parents born in Midway, Georgia on August 6th, 1848, making her a Leo. My source, the Georgia Encyclopedia, used the phrase daughter of enslaved parents instead of born into slavery, and I kind of like that better. You know, human-centered language and all that, we love to see it. But also Susie was enslaved too, and so that phrasing doesn't quite make that clear. The same article went on to say her owner, so that's kind of a mixed bag. Uh, just for context, uh, the term these days would be like enslaver, uh, and that might change in the future, but for now it's enslaver, um, as far as I know, unless either of you know better. No, no, I don't think we're the best to speak on that. I just terms. I just did a, like an entire project on slavery. I think enslaver is is the term today. Individual who enslaved someone. Shitty yeah. person who thought it was okay. To Shitty I've person. Seen, I've Asshole. Seen, Asshole's a good one. <laughs> Asshole's a good one. I I have definitely seen it phrased as person who owned enslaved people to call out as like a way to call out the person just being like mm-hmm. No, we're not sugarcoating. They quite literally owned these people, and that's a shitty thing to do. Not just owner. I think Crackers. for now, I'm going to continue using the fr- the term enslaver. And maybe in the future, there will be a word that someone finds that combines all of these ideas. At that point, I will start using that word. But for now, I'm going to use enslaver. Anyway, when Susie was seven, she was allowed to leave the plantation where she was born and enslaved for her grandmother's home. And her grandmother's enslavement status is kind of weird because Georgia slave codes were kind of weird. Anyways, for more on slave codes, go watch the Crash Course Black American History episode. That's not what this story is about, but it's very important information just in general for living your life as a human, especially an American human. Part of the Georgia slave code was that black people, especially black enslaved people, were not allowed to be educated, but Susie was educated in two secret schools, which is incredibly badass. Uh, and one of her teachers was Mother Matilda Beasley, who was Georgia's first black Catholic nun. In 1862, when Susie was just a teenager, she and some of her family members, as well as a bunch of other people from Georgia, uh, escaped enslavement to St. Simon's Island, which is one of the South Carolina Sea Islands that was technically behind Union lines, even though it was South Carolina. A lot of fugitives who ended up on this island, including Susie's brothers, became the first South Carolina volunteers in the Union Army, which also happened to be the first Black regiment in the U.S. Army. 
And Susie, who was, and I cannot stress this enough, 14 years old, said, yes, I will go with them. She started work as a laundress and then kind of became a nurse as they needed nurses. Famously, the Civil War was very bloody, but we are here for educators. So let me get to it. In many places, enslaved people were not allowed to learn to read. In addition to, to Georgia, the first South Carolina was made up almost entirely of formerly enslaved people with the exception of the colonel, basically. Therefore, none of the first South Carolina could read except for Susie. And before even leaving St. Simon's Island, the Union Army found out she could read and offered to, like, get her books if she could organize a school. And guess the fuck what? She did it. So there she is, literally, literally 14, teaching 40 kids to read and write and organizing an entire school. An icon. An icon. And so when the first South Carolina headed out, Susie went with them and taught all of these soldiers to read. Uh, Susie had actually married one of these soldiers named Edward King, thus becoming Susie Baker King. And in 1866, Edward and Susie moved back to Savannah, where Susie started a private school for newly freed children. Uh, Unfortunately, Edward died later that year while Susie was pregnant. Susie was newly widowed, newly a mom, and it was really hard to make money. Her private school had been nudged out by public school and failed. So Susie left her son, Edward Jr., with her mother and tried to start a night school for adults as well as children, but that also ended up failing. In 1868, Susie had no choice but to take a position as a domestic servant for a rich white family in Savannah. Then around 1872, my sources were like conflicting. Some of them said 1872, some of them just said 1870s. And I was like, can you just be specific? But around 1872, Susie was employed by a merchant who traveled all up and down the eastern seaboard, but was based in Boston. Uh, And by 1874, Susie had settled there herself and got remarried in 1879 to Russell Taylor, thus becoming Susie King Taylor. While in Boston, Susie became active with the Women's Relief Corps, a nationwide organization for female Civil War veterans. I'm assuming primarily nurses because that's primarily what women were when they served in the Civil War. In 1898, Susie returned south to Louisiana to care for her only son as he died of consumption. While there, Susie wrote reminiscences of my life in camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops, late first South Carolina volunteers. Long ass title, but they were her memoirs about working in the army. And she published that memoir in 1902, making her the only black woman to have published her own account of the Civil War and the only woman to have published an account of the Civil War from inside a regiment. Everyone else was in hospitals, not like traveling around with them. Susie died 10 years later on October 12, 1912 in Boston. I am waiting for Crash Course Black American History to do an episode on her. They've given me so many ideas for incredible women to cover. Uh, I want them to cover Susie. We haven't quite gotten to the- Comment it. Send an email. Send a fan I should. In the timeline, they're going like in timeline order. So we haven't quite gotten to this this part. So I'm hoping that like one of the next couple episodes might be a Susie King Taylor episode. That would be very exciting. So here's what we do. With the ladies they've given us already, let's have a Black History a la Crash Course episode chain going. I'll just do... And then ladies from Crash Course Black American History. Yeah. Wait, we find topics, right? And like, they're like, it's like a little bit subliminal. Like Haley and I are just doing whoever, but you are only doing women who are or should be on Black American History. Black American History. 
every black American woman should be on Crash Course Black American History, so yeah. that should not be a so, problem. Okay, the podcast, the podcast just becomes you only talk about black women. That's my new thing. Mm-hmm. Remember uh, when we did boss bitches? And we didn't plan it, but they were all all black women, black women who yeah. own businesses. Iconic. Iconic. Did you know? Did you know? I learned the statistic. Majority of black business owners are women, which that's the only race in America where that's true. Every other race in America, I mean, race is a social construct, blah, 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 blah. But statistically, every other racial group in America, men own more businesses. Black women really be out here just doing the most for everybody, saving us. And we don't deserve them but we need them. I'm specifically speaking politically. You can find this podcast on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Lady History Pod. Our show notes and a transcript of this episode and our merch will be on ladyhistorypod.com. If you like the show, leave us a review or follow us on Patreon. And if you don't like the show, keep it to yourself. Our logo is by Alexia Ibarra. You can find her on Instagram at girlbum.productions. Our theme music is by me, Garage Band, and Amelia Earhart. Lexi is doing the editing. You will not see us and we will not see you, but you will hear us next time on Lady History. Next week on Lady History, we're going to be on vacation. Haley is moving. Alana is doing her thing in DC, hopefully getting over the giggles that she's it's been having. Holidays. You can't even get it. Can't even stop giggling for me to do my part.